You're listening to Tone Vendors, the Sound Designers Podcast. Let's do this. Hey everybody, welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Tim and I will be your host today. Joining me in the hosting hot seat is Teresa Morrow. Hey Teresa, <laughs> how are you surviving in these troubled times? Oh, you know, same as usual. Fine. Getting by, eh? Today we're going to talk about organizing crowdsourced sound effects libraries. Not sure how many of our listeners have jumped on board with this, but 2020 has been a banner year for the concept. Last spring we had Al Circuit on to talk about the successful ambient isolation crowdsource. You can listen to episode 141 for more on that specific one. But today our guests are going to be Kai Paquin, an Emmy award-winning sound editor at Lime Studios in Los Angeles. He's been running crowdsources on the field recording Slack channel for around five years, including the car tune and impact libraries that our listeners can purchase by donating to charity. How are you doing today, Kai? Oh, I'm doing real well. Also, uh, we have joining us Tim Nielsen, who is currently wrapped up the My Home crowdsource, possibly the most successful one that's been done yet. Tim is based in the Bay Area in California and is a supervising sound editor at Skywalker Ranch. Welcome to the show, Tim. Hey, thanks for having me back. Tim, you're our returning champion. You were on to talk about The Cave last year in one of my favorite documentaries. That one is still haunting me. Yeah. It's still going. It's, it's still winning awards. It just got nominated for a European uh, Film Award for Best Documentary, which is always interesting how film can seem to span almost two or three years, it seems like, and still be officially there. But yeah, what a great project that was. Yeah, it deserves all the, the uh, accolades that it gets, for sure. Finally, our last guest you may know is Renee Coronado, longtime host of the Tonebender Sound Design Podcast. He's currently <laughs> running a crowdsource on the field recording Slack and was a pioneer by running the first sound effects-related Kickstarter. Welcome to the show, Renee. Was I the first? Hey, how are you? Weren't you the first? Yeah, you were the first. I, I did the trolley. Good Lord, that was a decade ago. That was a long-ass time wow. ago. Wow. And I used those sounds. Yeah, I just used it. I just used those sounds in Minions. Oh, using Minions? Nice. <laughs> I use it yeah. on Paw Patrol, so it's dominating animation these days. <laughs> <laughs> so for anyone who's not sure what the concept is, Tim, why don't you take this? Just give us the broad strokes of what a crowdsource library is. Right. Well, I'm more of the sort of one of the latecomers to this, I will admit. But yeah, the idea is that you pool a bunch of people that want to join the project together who are willing to go out and record a particular topic or a subject. And you sort of share all of the recordings. So they can be done for charity or not. There have been a lot of them that have been run just with the participants getting copies of the recordings, things like that. And I know that on the couple of Slack channels in different places they've been running for years and sometimes they have 10 participants sometimes you know they have hundreds so they can vary a lot but they've been done on various topics and doors and ambiences and impacts and cartoons and different things but it's basically a way to encourage recording I think is one of the main goals that most of us who are running these or trying to do them are want to do is spread sort of the joy of recording some of them are raising money for charity and also just a way to collectively gather a library of things and particularly like in my case ambience library that you know from recordings from around the world it would be nearly impossible for a single person to accumulate and that was one of my goals with this is just a way to reach out and it's also really a great way to meet new recordists for sure Tim, what was the very first crowdsource that you participated in? I've been doing them for years with a bunch of students of mine over the years when I've done lectures and stuff. We've had a little informal group that we've done sort of amongst ourselves. But the first one that I joined was fairly recently. Maybe it was Julybrary that Kai ran, I, honestly. I mean, I'd missed out on a couple before that. I, I always seem to find out about them just at, as the, at the end of them. So I didn't make the cutoff for ambient isolation and I didn't um, participate in Doors, which was the first one I was sort of aware of on the Slack channel. Um, and then I just missed out on the horror one because I've been so busy trying to finish mine, literally 10 hours a day. But yeah, so I'm sort of relatively new to it, not as seasoned as you and Kai, for sure. So to my knowledge, the very first one that I know of, was the, the true pioneer on this was Tim Preble, who did yeah, the doors. a Doors library way back when. And yeah. we were literally shipping a hard drive yeah. around the world with the final project of that thing. Yeah, no, for sure. And I believe me, the hard drive method, I was I had to think long and hard about on this one because we're at 550 gigabytes on uh, the My Home one. And some of these people are recording from Colombia and from Nigeria. And I mean, I don't know the state of their internet connection. I hope they're going to be able to download the library, you know, to be honest with you. I mean, I think nowadays it's getting much easier. But yeah, I remember Tim's library and it was shipped around on hard drives and shared that way. There's too many Tims being brought up in this conversation. <laughs> it's never going to be you, Tim. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now I feel bad. <laughs> so, Kai, what was the first crowdsource that you took part in? Oh, man. Um, yeah, I think the first one that, that I did through the field recording Slack was probably Wind. How many have you run now, Kai? Because you've ran a lot of them. Oh, man. I don't really keep track. <laughs> it's got to be more than 10, it's right? Got, definitely got to be more than 10. I'm sure there are a vast amount of our listeners that aren't familiar with what the field recording Slack is that we keep mentioning. Mm. And oh, hopefully yeah. everyone's familiar with the concept of Slack, the the software, the app, I guess. But we will put a link to join the field recording Slack on the notes for this episode if you go to ToneBendersPodcast.com. And you can join, and it's a really cool, it's just a Slackware with a bunch of channels where everyone talks about field recording. There's also a sound design and audio post and crowdsource channels many other channels as well as channels for individual cities if you're trying to meet up with people in your own town. So if you aren't already a member and you want to take part in a crowdsource that Kai might run in the future <laughs> or that Renee is currently running one right now actually, uh, you can go to the tonebenderspodcast.com find this episode and uh, the link to join should be in the notes there. Kai, let's get down to the nitty gritty. Like, What's the first step when you decide you're going to start running a crowdsource? I think it kind of depends because like, we're constantly talking to each other pretty much every day Things might be happening, like spring's coming, so like all the birds are starting to come back, and people might start like discussing, oh man, maybe we should uh, all pile all our good bird recordings from this season together. Or like, right now we're all like locked in for COVID, so we're trying to think of things that would be approachable from uh, that perspective. So we've been talking about doors and home appliances and stuff along those lines. I think it kind of depends on who's initiating a crowdsource and kind of what circumstances work best for what you want to record. In general, though, like kind of number one rule is that you want to pick something that everyone can participate in, whether like you don't want to do something like exotic wildcats or something like that. <laughs> well, we do we do want to do that. But we just feel it's not fair to do that. <laughs> I would absolutely love to be part of that. But yeah, I don't know uh, how many people have access to that. So you're trying to come from a point of like, what can someone who just bought their first microphone and recorder do that someone who's been in the industry for like 20 to 30 years be able to do? So there's some people who want to record just like a lot of raw kind of material to design with. So there's those kinds of crowdsources like... Like Creatures. Well, I think Creatures is a little bit borderline. So well, it's both. Yeah, it's both. It's definitely both. But something like Water is pretty approachable and it's usually going to be the raw source. Versus something like Renee's crowdsource, which is like uh, Sparkles, I think is the title. I got I got Holiday Sparkles and... Yeah, so Holiday Sparkles kind of leans more towards the design aspect. I'm sure there will be a lot of source material in there, but I'm sure a lot of people are going to take their source material and kind of push it into more of a design realm. Yeah, and I'm going to do another one that's a little bit more source materially for bicycles here at some point. There's different ways to run these crowdsources. Different people can inject their own personalities into how they run these things. There's starting to be some best practices, some kind of quote-unquote industry standards on how these things go. But still, everyone has their own personality with regards to how they set the rules, how they deploy documentation, how they inform the group that this thing even exists. You know, Tim and, and Kai, both of you, like, how do you approach the first steps? Like, what are the first steps with regards to what you have to write down and organize to look, get one of these things off the ground? Well, I think that, like, for me, it's just uh, like Kai, too. It's like you, you figure out what your end goal is. What is it you're hoping to come on the, out of the back end of this process with? And then you sort of start writing a list of rules. So I knew that I was doing some ambiences for this. So first we're sort of like, okay, what kind of files am I going to accept? You know, a lot of people are going to want to submit Amazonics files, raw MS files, things that may confuse. Uh, a lot of the people who participate in these are not seasoned recordists or things like that. So I had to sort of say, okay, we got to set some pretty strict parameters here. You know, files that don't have to be decoded, things like that. Length limits, you know, knowing these are ambiences, I don't want hour and a half recordings from everybody. So you just start to build your sort of list of what do you want it to look like, I think, when you're done and try to set up some rules. Then you have to sort of think through the logistics of how you're going to get all these recordings, what kind of metadata are you going to require from the participants, what are you willing to do yourself. And that's certainly an ongoing process. I mean, we've been talking a lot amongst ourselves, you know, the three of us, Renee and Kai and different people have had all these meetings where we've been trying to figure all these things out. And every one of these that happens learns something new and gets a little sort of more refined as time goes on. I mean, ambient isolation was an amazing project. And I've talked at length with Al about it. And Kai and I spent a whole like several days kind of trying to rework the metadata on that because it was this 
amazing project, but there wasn't a lot of thought about things like metadata and things. It was more just like, let's gather all these sounds. And what came out of it was this amazing collection of sounds, but it wasn't organized in such a way to be easy to sort of use right out of the box, if you want to put it that way and things. And I know that Al's doing another one now, Ambient Socialization, and he's going to try to do more, uh, make it a little stricter and things. So it's a, it's a balancing act. If you make it too complicated, the worry is you'll scare away users. I had several people emailing me on this saying it was the first time they've ever recorded anything. I had a guy who was in his 60s message me and he goes, you know, I was inspired to go get a recorder and go out and try to record sounds around my town. And I mean, that's that's what it's really all about. You can't make it too complicated for people or you're going to scare them away. But you also, you know, you have to have some rules or you just have chaos on your hands. I like to hear that because I'm like, I'm on the Slack, but I'm a lurker on the Slack. Like I don't record much and haven't contributed to any of these because I have kind of felt like, oh, this is sort of, these are projects for people who record for a living and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that's not what we want. Of course, you you want a library of the best material you can get. But I will say that, you know, in, in something like the one we're running that I just finished, there are some absolutely professional recordings and there are plenty that aren't and things that, you know, I might have done a little differently, but even those recordings have uses. And, you know, you, I find use for those kind of recordings all the time, recordings that aren't perfect and different things. And, but again, the goal of it, I think to me is to really encourage recording and not discourage people from recording by sort of criticizing, you know, it's when you do a crowdsource, you always expect a wide range of quality coming in from different things. And Kai and I have, have talked about trying to do some tutorials and trying to help teach things better. Like how do you master better? How can you record better? And things like that's what it should be is sort of a learning experience for all the people who want to take part. They should have access to sort of become better if that's their goal. And one thing that I think we can do better, I think, which is the next thing that I'm talking about doing, which will be a year long thing in all of 2021. But the goal of that is not just to gather the sounds, but also to use it as a whole mechanism for teaching this, you know, style of recording we're going to run that we're going to try and do, which is all about nature recording. So, Teresa, from your perspective, what kinds of things do you feel like are preventing you from participating? What kinds of things do you think put you over the edge? Like what kind of project would you see that would be like, you know what? All right, this is the one I'm going to dive in. Well, I think most people are like, do I have quality enough equipment? I mean, for me, that's where I'm at. Right? I mean, this RE20 that I'm talking to is the only mic I have access to right now. So that would be one thing. The other thing is kind of the communication around it. Like, is it clear what this is about? Is there kind of a clear guideline on like kind of what you're saying, Tim, about the teaching aspect of it? Like, oh, give people a clear guideline of like exactly what we're looking for so that they just feel like there isn't a confusion about, oh, am I going to submit something that's not going to be admissible because I don't get what this is about? Maybe. Sure. And I think that like the, the way that a lot of these started within the Slack channel, I think the Slack channel, it was always sort of assumed that people there kind of were like minded and maybe even sort of similar experience level a little bit, you know, or, or a little closer. And I tried to reach out quite a bit outside of that as well and Twitter and any place I could sort of spread the word. And so I think I might have gotten a wider range of people's experience levels and stuff. But I did, you know, we I would say half the files in this library recorded on handheld style recorders, Zoom H1s, H6s, H5s, Sony D50s, things that are pretty accessible to most people. And I had a lot of people would email me, I'd like to take part, but this is all I have. I don't know. And I'd be like, of course, take part. We have some mono recordings. People only had a, a mono microphone. And those still have a use, you know, and so I think people shouldn't be discouraged from joining and, and asking questions and using it as a chance to learn to try to record. There's also an aspect when I first joined the field recording Slack, there is an intimidation aspect because I have a fair amount of really high quality recording gear. But when I record, it's for myself. So I haven't put out a library before and like the metadata works for my brain. Sure. And I don't know if it's going to work for anybody else's brain kind of thing. So the first couple in the field recording Slack that I did took part in, which would have been glass and uh, plastic, I think, were the first ones I did a couple years ago. I was not worried about the quality of the recordings. I was worried about the quality of the metadata. Mm. And at that point, there wasn't the documentation that there is now. So like the, the last few that I've taken part in, like it's very clear, there's a spreadsheet you fill out. It's all uh, explained very clearly in the spreadsheet that you include with your entrance. And I, I feel like there, there's a big step forward in that. A step forward isn't even right. It's an evolution. Like, it's small steps with each new month's crowdsource. Well, my impression, I think, Kai, I think you were one of the first ones to really start really 
putting these elaborate spreadsheets and to really force people into sort of thinking about what they're submitting for metadata and stuff. And then, you know, Kai was a big part of this category thing that I was working on this year. And, and a, a big part of that also, you know, has come into play. I think it, the goal of that is to try to also give some framework. But Kai, you, you, I mean, maybe, I don't know the ones before you were started doing that. I don't know how metadata was handled because I wasn't around for a lot of those. But yeah, it's always something we talk about, Kai and I and other people. I mean, it was the Wild West before. Yeah, I think the thing is, like, when these started out, they were very small. I think the first couple ones were only five or six people. Once they started hitting about 20 people, and it's that's still a pretty manageable amount of files to deal with. Usually there wasn't a rule in metadata. It was just people submitted what they felt was a finished file. And then uh, the person who is collecting all the files afterwards would just go through and tidy it up a little bit and then hand it back out. I think there was a tipping point. When I was running them, they started getting to like 50 or 60 people. And some of these people would be submitting like close to like 50 or 60 gigs sometimes is kind of absurd. You know who you are. <laughs> uh, the, once the library started passing like 1,200 to 1,500 files, um, I realized like I'm spending like way more time that I can really offer for free kind of fixing everyone's metadata and trying to make it consistent. So that's kind of the point where uh, I started introducing this spreadsheet method where people are just downloading a basically a template and just filling it out based on the example. The kind of benefit to that, though, is we had a lot of people who are using programs like Basehead and Soundly. In my world, I'm always in Soundminer, so that's kind of where I wanted the final metadata to like live and make most sense. But because everyone's using all these different programs, all the metadata they, that they intend to go in the fields that I would receive end up going somewhere completely different. Like artist or designer might end up in some sort of weird IXML field that like I wouldn't think to like grab it from. And so it turned into this huge like puzzle of trying to piece together like where things were meant to go and where they actually belong when they're like finally in one single uh, library program. Yeah, I mean, metadata has been a has been a, an, an ongoing struggle for that exact reason. I mean, there's a little hope that you know, getting technical stuff, but that IXML fields might be the solution to this. And I mean, I've been talking to Pro Sound Effects and Soundly and stuff about possibly trying to come up with sort of a universal metadata container that all the programs could basically read the same fields from. You'd have to have everybody on board, but because it is an issue right now. I mean, for mine, I had to have somebody convert all the metadata into Basehead and create a spreadsheet for Basehead users that they could import. And I've done everything in SoundMinder and then I'm exporting everything to C CSV. But I mean, there are plenty of people who still who aren't using any data based program who are just running, you know, metadata, reading it in right in Reaper or Pro Tools or something and not really using anything for the metadata. So, yeah, you get a wide variety if you don't sort of spell out exactly what you want. I've seen some files come through some of these with names like w3.wave. And, you know, that's literally the only information <laughs> that you have available. And you're just like, I, you know, I don't even know where to start. Yeah, I think it's kind of funny and helpful coincidence was uh, that the spreadsheet method was coming about right when universal category system was coming together. So it just really clicked that uh, we'd try to integrate both of those together for a lot of the ongoing crowdsources now. And I think it's taken off pretty well. Like it's, uh, I think the last like f six plus have been in UCS format. And what's awesome about that is like now that we have some sort of level of consistency and there's like actually documentation of how you're supposed to be doing your metadata and like how the file name should be structured. It takes a lot less work now to like try to recalibrate everyone's personal systems into like one coherent library. Yeah. Do you guys have kind of like a, a nutshell explanation of UCS and how it came about? I mean, it's kind of a game changer. What's your elevator pitch, Tim? <laughs> First of all, it was a terrible idea. I'm going to build a time machine, go back in time and erase all the files from my hard drive. Okay, it started very quickly about five years ago. I had taught a class in Hamburg, Germany. And when I was asking the students, what is it that I could maybe teach you that you sort of don't know? A lot of them said, we have no idea how to organize a sound library. Now, I've been doing that for years. And so it was sort of second nature to me. So I went home and I decided to build my own category list based sort of on the Skywalker one, but also taking into account other lists and things. And I just thought, I'll make something that's sort of freely available. There, This had been done before. I certainly wasn't the first. Simpty had a list. Larry Blake 
tried to make a list at one point, but they were pretty inadequate, I thought, at the time or so I felt. So I made this list. Justin Drury from Soundminer sort of posted on his website, and that was kind of the end of it. So COVID happened, and I thought, maybe I'll revisit this. I don't know why exactly. I don't know what triggered it, but I decided to look at it again. You're in a dark place. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then and I'm in a dark place, so then I thought, I'm going to drag Kai into this with me. And a bunch of people came in to help. Uh, Justin from Soundminer helped do a lot of implementation. Kai came on board to help with a bunch of things scripting. We had a little brain trust of like 12 of us that met probably every Saturday for a month for four hours, five hours sometimes. And we just honed the list over and over again trying to. So I gave you a quick summation. So the idea is it's got a few parts, but the basic part of it is simply a list of categories and subcategories and an attempt to sort of standardize what we all call a prop aircraft, for example. It used to be that you would get files from anywhere and it might come in as airplane or prop plane or propeller plane or whatever. You know, there was no standardization in the name of the categories. A lot of them would come in with no categories or anything like that. So the list is basically 670-ish category, subcategory pairs. That's really the core of it. And there's also a file name structure and different things. I mean, it gets a little more in depth than that. And there's a bunch of videos and stuff on it. And there's a bunch of software now written to do a bunch of things and scripts. And it's sort of grown. But the idea is to try to make a usable system to categorize so that when you get files from different vendors or from crowdsources or whatever, that they all have a common category system so that if you wanted to then do something different on your end, you could, but you have this sort of consistency. I mean, I run the library for Skywalker Sound and in addition to the other things I do there, you know, it's a chore when every time you buy sound effects, they come in with just completely different ideas of what metadata should look like and what a category should be called. And that's sort of what it is. And the goal was to try to offer this sort of thing. It's totally optional, of course. And But a lot of people have sort of signed on. Pro Sound Effects just completed their core two library, which is about 360,000 sound effects recategorized into the system. And quite a few of the other big name vendors out there. And then the, I think it is really good for something like these crowdsources because, again, it just it forces some kind of standardization, you know, even if it's not perfect and things, you know, again, if Kai then, you know, I had 4,666 files on this crowdsource. And if I had to try and go through every single one of them and try to assign a category or reinterpret what somebody wrote as that category. So instead I said, you know, here's the list, pick the category that you think your sound fits and then it comes to me ready to go or at least that part of it is ready to go. So if anybody wants to learn more about it, the UCS, you can go to universalcategorysystem.com. Again, we'll uh, put a link on the show notes for this episode. There's videos there that you can see. The list of all the categories is there. And I feel like it's a weird thing to wrap your head around. When I first heard about it in the spring, I was just like, uh, that sounds great, but I'm not sure if I'm ready to jump on board with that. But once you actually understand it and wrap your head around it, it's not complicated at all. It's it's actually freeing because like when you're going to write something, if you have an absolutely blank palette, that can be difficult. But if you can go to this list and start with something, it gives you a starting point that uh, you feel confident in. And my opinion on the UCS, it was never negative. I just was overwhelmed by the yeah. idea. No, I get and then it. once I started learning about it and watching the videos and especially the workflow stuff in SoundMiner, yeah. It's it's amazing and it completely changes the way you think about things. Yeah, and I will say that like Pro Sound Effects Search and Soundly are both going to implement it in their programs in ways as well. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like yet, but yeah, I think you know we got a little bit of a reputation right off the get bat as being sort of the metadata mafia and sort of trying to force this down people's <laughs> throats. And you know, the, some people were very vocal about really disliking the file name structure. There's an optional file name structure which I won't get into. It's complicated a little bit, but again, the idea I think that people didn't sort of understand really the point, which is if everything comes into you consistently, then you can very easily adapt that metadata to your own purposes. If you don't like the file name, fine. If they all come in in one format, then it's one button press in SoundMiner to build a file name that you like. And I'm even on this crowdsource, I'm actually supplying two completely alternate file names in the metadata. And we actually have a little app that's almost done being written to basically just rename the entire library to one of these alternate file name systems. If you don't like the USCS file names, then I've prepped two sort of very different ones that are much more readable to most people and stuff. So again, the idea is with the consistency of something like that, then metadata becomes easy to re-manipulate. And it took Kai and I, what, four or five days to sort of go through ambient isolation. And I started doing most of it and then Kai jumped on to help with certain things. But I mean, it was a big chore. And that's that's what librarians are sort of faced with right now is that every time you acquire sound effects from different vendors, you've got to spend, go through each library totally differently and, and reassign it all, do it by hand. And so the goal was... 
have a common framework, even if we don't all love it, at least it's common to us all. And then it makes manipulating that metadata that much easier. Has it been that the universe of commercial sound libraries has just like exploded? Mm. Like in the last, I don't know, 15 years or something like that, that would necessitate this? Like that there, you, you just do have like so many sound effects coming from so many disparate places. Yeah, I think that there's like over 3,000 sound libraries on a sound effect now and I don't know, 700 different vendors or maybe it's much more like 2,000 vendors and 32,000 libraries. I can't remember, some some huge number. The real goal, I think, that both Kai's spreadsheet and I think are just to force people into thinking better about metadata and trying to do stuff that's better. I mean, the Sonus used to put out this GDC library every year of sort of a, a pool of free <laughs> sounds. And and I'm not knocking Sonus at all or, or the vendors who supplied things. But whenever people ask me, like, well, there, anytime somebody went, like, what's the point of UCS? I would simply call up a Soundminer database of the 5,000 Sonus GDC files, and you would literally have, yeah, w1.wave. You would have, you know, maybe 5% of them had categories in the first place. You know, 70% of them didn't even have descriptions. So the goal was, you know, to force better metadata in general and to try to offer some framework for that. And I think the crowdsources is where it's really come into its own to some degree. I do, I haven't had any negative feedback and most people have said, this is great. This has made it so much easier that I've, I've had somewhere to look for something. I haven't had to sort of just think about it from scratch. And Renee's, Renee's crowdsource is going to have one category, <laughs> magic chimes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of those people that the the first few that I ran, I I run like I still can't wrap my head around why you even need a category, right? It's just not the way that my workflow works, right? Mm. But I recognize that other people do, right? And so I'm very into like the metadata aspect of things. I recognize also that if you can't find the file in your library, then the file doesn't exist. So what I opted to do with this particular one, this is the first one that I'm doing using the UCS. It's the first one that I'm doing using the spreadsheet. Kai's model of the spreadsheet. And the reason I actually found value in that is for scale, right? Just like as you've been talking about as you're importing libraries, anytime I buy a library for our facility and bring it in or bring in something from a crowdsource or anything else, I do the same thing. I go through it and I manipulate all the metadata to uh, to serve my needs, right? To serve mm-hmm. the way that I want to work. And, you know, there are certain vendors out there that sell amazing sounds with zero metadata on them. And, you know, I just have to, yeah. you know, take a moment and find it, even decide if it's worth it to go through that process. When these crowdsources started scaling up to the level of what Al put together with ambient isolation and, and to the level of what started happening on this crowdsource uh, on the field recording Slack, it started to really require some sort of standardization. Because if you don't have it, then then you just get so much randomness that you're never going to find the files, and it'll be a huge, tragic waste. So I decided to lean into the standardization side of it. Even though I'm personally going to run things my way within my own library, I recognize the value of what that standardization does once things reach a certain scale. When it's five people or 15 people or 20 people, you can handle it. When it's 50, 60, 80, 100, then, then it's too much. You have to automate. You have to. Yeah. And I mean, as far as categories go, like I'm with you, like I, I mostly am doing keyword searches. I almost never browse my library by category. But when I polled it, like 70% of the people out there said that they basically will call up a category and just start listening to the sounds in that category. So there are lots of different ways that people work and interact with their library. So I, I'm sort of the opinion, you know, you can't really have too much metadata if it's good metadata, right? Sure. And you can very much have too little metadata. So, I mean, I think that for me, I have five, five fields that make up my main database in SoundMinder. I'm always looking at category, subcategory, effects, name, description library show designer like that's what I care about but other people have different things I mean Kai likes to have in perspectives mic perspectives and microphone types and stuff I don't particularly care about microphone to be honest with you for me I listen to the sound and I don't really care where how it was recorded if it's the right sound it's the right sound but it's fun sometimes to see what people recorded on but other people Kai I know has to work really fast and his job is you know things like mic perspective distance things these things help him narrow down to sounds much faster when we were doing the transition from um Basically, anything goes into this uh, spreadsheet fashion of submitting files. One of the things we kept running into, well, one of the problems I was causing, (laughs) more specifically, (laughs) is uh, I like a lot of metadata. Whether it's useful or not to me, I just like to have every field that I can think of filled because then I can understand the sound better if I want to like recreate it or if I want to do something way off in the future with it. But... Because of the time commitment for filling out 
lots of different fields, especially with some of these people who are submitting like a hundred files themselves. When you have to start filling out a spreadsheet with like 2000 cells or something like that, it just becomes too daunting to really like participate. So we had a lot of drops offs early on in the spreadsheet process. And it's been this really weird like tango of trying to figure out like what is enough and what is too much. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I caught you caught, you know, this and, and we've talked about it. I mean, I, I didn't participate in one or two around that time because it was I think it was maybe the doors one that I just that spreadsheet was pretty daunting. And um, yeah. I think I even started, <laughs> yeah, I think I recorded the sounds and I even had started and it was taking me like five times longer to fill out the spreadsheet than it was to like had mastered the sounds. And I was just I finally gave up. I was frustrated. And um, so there's that balance for sure. I think we're still trying to find exactly what that balance is. I mean, on this one, I, I asked for a file name in a certain format, and then I think I just had four fields, description, microphone, location, and keywords. And keywords was even optional. But you still didn't get perfect responses for that, right? Oh, no. I mean, there were thousands of errors still through the things, <laughs> misspellings and wrong category IDs and stuff. I will say 75% of the files came in pretty good. And there are a lot of silly sort of mistakes and things like that, just sort of sloppy mistakes of people not sort of taking the time to triple check their work or double check it and stuff. But no, for the most part, everything came in enough that I could fix it at the very least. You know, there were nothing, there were only two submissions that sort of did, apparently didn't read anything about the rules and just like sent raw <laughs> files with nothing. And I was just like, yeah, no, try again. Everybody else tried their best. And you know, the other thing is I had 62 countries represented in this. So 615 recordists, a lot of people whose English is not their first language. So there were a lot of spelling mistakes that were just people trying to write in English and, and some things like that. So, you know, I have to give everybody more credit that, you know, people did try and, but yeah, there were a lot of things that still had to be fixed. But it, it, without that sort of level of standardization that I put in there, I would have never even tried to do this. I would have just given up instantly. I mean, even as it was, it took, you know, about a month solid of my time to sort of go through and wrangle it. And Justin and I have been trying to do some things with location that are kind of fun and maps, embedded URLs and GPS coordinates and different, you know, we have all these ideas of things we could do to make it fun and usable. But, but all of it took a lot of time. The three steps are, you know, you create... You create the structure of the of the crowdsource, then you get all the files in and you wrangle everything, and then the third step is you have to redistribute back out. Yeah, and that's what I meant. Oh, I just yeah. I just sent my links today, so we're in that exact phase right now. Even I think Renee, both you and I, were like, pause the BitTorrent before we do this uh, interview because <laughs> I think I've uploaded almost eight terabytes since yesterday morning across wow. my connection. Yeah, like the distribution's definitely been the hardest learning curve of the whole thing. Early on, we just use Google Drive to collect and to submit stuff but um at this point like some of these libraries are kind of getting to too big to manage like tim's especially well and google drive and dropbox and stuff will only allow a certain number of downloads before they fail i mean when al's tried to distribute ambient isolation he hit that right away on dropbox where within yep. like two days dropbox was just like yep no more for like a week come back in a week and so he had to figure out a completely alternate way to deliver them and yeah, I mean, I've got uh, I've got a terabyte of storage to deliver this, and it's almost full between the FLAC and the Wave version of the libraries. It's like 900 gigabytes stored, and we're using BitTorrent to try to distribute just as uh, as an attempt to sort of try something new. Time will tell if it's been a good choice or not. So far, it appears to be working. I haven't had too many people email me saying they haven't been able to figure it out or anything. But yeah, the distribution is a problem. Like we say, it might be back to hard drives like Tim Preble had to do on doors at some point, you know? His was about like, I think 80 or 90 gigs at the time. That yeah, was also, what, 12 or 15 years ago, something like that. The, you yeah, know, the downside yeah. of BitTorrent, though, is the uh, the lack of security, right? That link goes out once to somebody else, and then anybody that wants it can, can grab the library, right? As long as the people are still seeding, uh, we had to make a sort of count. The thing is, we're on a private tracker. So I'm using a service that has their own tracker. I believe I have the ability to kill to kill the tracker, actually. So we'll see. But because we're going to be distributing this through charity and stuff, I kind of need the distribution system to stay up. At some point, we just had to make the call, or I made the call, that like you can't stop people from stealing the library and sharing it. You know, It's like somebody could just as easily steal the download link and the password. So unless I was going to remove it at intervals and redo it and re-upload it over and over again, there's not a lot you can do. You're just going to have to trust that you know, you're trying to do something worthwhile for the world and doing a charity thing and that hopefully people will, will act correctly. I think we would have really struggled to distribute it almost any other way, to be honest with you. I mean, BitTorrent has some real 
positives, which are you don't have to compress zip files. All the files come in uncompressed. So with something like this, I was going to have to split this into like 120 zip files or something and then download. <laughs> I mean, it would have been that would have been so frustrating for people to use. And BitTorrent shares the bandwidth. So people are downloading 500 gigs in 12 to 20 hours. Some of these people are getting it quite fast and things like that. So we'll see. Yeah, it's another problem of scale, right? Because I mean, if the it, for these libraries that were you know six and eight or even you know twenty gigs or something like that, you could break it up into chunks and post it up and, and get it there. But you get into five hundred gigs, and it's just a scale issue that yeah. you, that's that's trying to get solved here. That's that's why we did it. The nice thing too about BitTorrent is that you can basically pause and stop the connection and restart it, and it will resume. Whereas you know if you're downloading thirty gig zip files or something, and then it crashes then you've got to start over. And I mean, that was happening a lot, even with three gigs at parts, people were complaining, you know, with different things that, you know, you get almost the way done, it would hang and then you're, oh, you got to start it over. So the BitTorrent can pause and resume really well, which is another positive thing about why we're trying it. Yeah. And there's other services that are capable of doing this kind of throughput, but they just cost money. Yeah. I mean, you could use something like a Spera, but a Spera is very expensive, you know, to set up a server. And, um, you know, I know Kai and I both basically spend out of our own pocket to sort of set up the, the distribution things. I mean, I'm still using a service called FileMail to, to handle the torrent uh, files. And, you know, it is possible to directly download this library. And at some point, if the torrent doesn't seem like it's working, I'll send out links and people can try to download directly. Yeah, the way I distributed our last couple was on Amazon S3, just because I knew that was going to be rock solid. And, you know, yeah, we were going to get an invoice for 20 bucks or something. And, you know, but it wasn't like hundreds. It was dozens of dollars. No, but when I calculated 615 users at, you know, 500 gigs a piece on Amazon A3, it was looking like many hundreds of dollars for me, you know, to use A3, S3, I mean. So um, it wasn't really an option. So the, the thing that start, seems to be happening is that the level of skill required, I guess, to take on one of these things, the barrier to entry to actually deciding to run one seems to be going up with regards to the number of things that you have to be able to handle from a logistics perspective, just because the scale of these things are starting to expand. Now, not all of them get huge. Right. But the community at large is starting to get used to a certain workflow right? that requires a little bit of know-how to dream up and administer. You know, we want to encourage other people to run these as well. We don't want that to be a barrier for people. Tim's going to run one next week, right? And uh, My eyes just shot open. <laughs> His eyes got like dinner plates. We all volunteer you, Tim. Now you have to do it. Gold. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've been trying on the Slack channel to say, like, if anybody wants to run one for the first time, those of us who have done them before will help because it does seem daunting. You know, it's daunting to participate in one. It's certainly daunting to try to run one, especially if you think it's going to become a big one and things like that. So, but yeah, I, I, I agree to some degree, Renee, but also I think that we've figured out certain things to work for uploaders and we're figuring out distribution a little easier and we're figuring out the spreadsheet and the metadata a little bit. So there's a learning curve, but it's also at least there's a framework now. And so I would hope in a way that might be less daunting because there are some things to help you and not just a complete blank canvas of like, okay, I got to figure everything out on my own here to do one. Especially if you're thinking it's one that's going to have more than five people in it. If you're thinking there's going to be five people, then like you said, it's less of a point, you know, it's not so a problem. You just email me the files, no problem. But as I mean, the Slack channel has got a thousand people in it now. So as these as these communities get bigger and bigger, there's going to be more people participating in these in general, I would think. That's your fault, Tim. <laughs> I know I broke I ruined everything. <laughs> what you mentioned about how the size of it makes a difference. I think that we're talking about these huge crowdsources. The great advantage of a crowdsource can work in smaller scale as well. Like if, if you are in your last year at college and you can get your class of 30 people together, all of a sudden you do three or four things. When you graduate, you guys all have a library together. Yep, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the biggest benefits of these things, yeah. It doesn't have to be a, a global thing. It can be something that just you and the people that work at the facility you work at or who are in your college. The first one that I ever took part in was the Sound Collectors Club. Yep. All right. Which was quite loosely based. It was just like this month we're doing wind sounds, send in wind sounds. And I think on a very small level, it's still going. Have you? I've seen some updates here and there. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen some updates here and there, but I haven't been... Uh, 
active on it in forever. But at one point, it was like a major way that I was building my library yeah. because they had some really great themes. And it was also a way to also get your name out there. You know, if you're just graduating from college, you're trying to make your name in this industry and you're talking to someone and you can say, oh, yeah, you have one of my sounds in your library because I, we both took part in this crowdsource. That person's going to maybe recognize your name. And like, that's an excellent way to start a conversation with other people in the industry that didn't exist before. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, for sure. One of the things that interests me about this is this community aspect of it. I mean, we've got this mailing list now for this new one of 600 people. And I, I hope sort of we can keep that community sort of going because a lot of the people aren't in the Slack group. They've come from different things through Facebook or Twitter or different things, and I've encouraged them to join and things uh, much to the chagrin of the people running the poor Slack channel. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm sort of I, I, I lean towards one direction. I'll be honest. I think if you're going to do these libraries, the more people you get involved in, the bigger it gets, the better the library. That's just how I've always sort of thought. You know, I want to be exposed to more recordings from more people with different takes on things and stuff. But I totally get that the community aspect of the Slack channel. You know, some people do lament the fact that it's now a thousand people and not 50 people who all knew each other and who all felt a little more social. I mean, I, I, it's a it's a it's a double edged sword. It's nice to have these tiny communities, but it's also nice to have these wider reaches and wider audiences, too. So, you know, it'll be like slam dance. Somebody will splinter off a new <laughs> a new Slack channel <laughs> like. Kai's friends Slack channel, you know, and that'll be all. It's it probably already happened and we just <laughs> don't know. <laughs> you know, I'm personally not on Facebook, but that field recording group and the game audio Slack are the two places where I really spend a lot of my my time with my with my community of people. Yeah, and there's a UCS Slack channel as well. I will say that, uh, you know, I really like Slack. I've got seven or eight channels. I'm members of different things for certain vendors and pro programs and things. And it's like, if people don't know, it's like Discord, basically, if you know Discord at all. It's a similar yeah. thing. It's a forum-based thing. But it's it's a great, it's a it's a well-organized system for staying in touch and posting topics and, and discussing all kinds of interesting things. We can put the uh, UCS Slack. Is there a general invite for that as well? It's on the homepage. If you just go to the homepage at the bottom, there's a link to it as well. And it's it's not super active. But it's place you know people post new libraries or post questions and things like that there, and so it's 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 the best place still that to go if you want to have any discussion about it. The other thing that I found really interesting about the crowdsources is that some of them have been going the extra step of becoming, after it's done, everyone who contributes a sound gets it. And then there's the next level of selling it for charity and raising money. And also I, what I really like about it is the way that it's been being done in that you actually donate to the charity and then you come back to the person running the crowdsource, show your receipt, and that way you know 100% of the money you donated goes to the charity, gets where it's going. There's no possibility for anyone running a scam or anything like that. It's a win-win situation all around. Well, I mean, I made a fake charity so that I can pocket all the money myself. <laughs> but um, Well, that methodology Kai pioneered, right? I was going to say, Kai, you were, you were the first one to sort of do the charity. I mean, you know, Al ultimately did it with I mean, isolation, but that he wasn't planning to do that when he started, but you were doing that long before that happened yeah i think actually al consulted me about that too yeah and it's exactly what it sounds like it just received the receipts and send out a link if you were the first one to come up with it like what how did you think about that was it just like hey we should do something good with this or like you know oh uh, yeah i did a lot of charity work in high school i kind of was missing a lot of that so uh, i was trying to find a way to kind of help the community and this is just kind of like one of the outlets that I had available to me. So I thought it'd be kind of cool to try to put them together. Yeah, I mean, it's been great. And I had the same big reason I did this was the charity aspect that you guys have been doing. And I just thought I want to do this same thing. And especially this year when it's been, we'll use our first swear word, so fucked. Um, <laughs> I just I just had the desire to do something positive or try to anyway. And, um, you know, but I took inspiration from cartoons and from some of the other things that you guys and from Al and what he had done and stuff. And I just thought, yeah, I mean, why not? Why not take what we know how to do and try to do something good with it, you know? Yeah, it's been really like uplifting, I guess, to just like see people in the community so excited about like donating their sounds to help raise money for like causes and stuff. So can I ask a question? Because this is something that's sort of come up a few times. I'm curious your guys' take on this. I mean, there's been a little bit of criticism of these crowdsources that were detracting from sound effects sales and vendors and different things like that, and that we might be hurting the sort of 
the community of people trying to make a living selling sound effects. And I mean, it is something I think about. I mean, I have my own opinions and different things, but I'm, I'm just curious if you guys have thought about that or, you know, how that sits with you guys. I mean, some people have been very vocal to me about it. I mean, like really like angry about it. Not many, but I mean, there have been some people with very strong opinions about it. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is like people have a budget for sound effects. And if they don't have to pay for these, they're going to spend that money. Yeah, on another I think library. so. Yeah. Well, I guess like my my two thoughts are we're all actually Tim Rene and I are all people who sell our own libraries on top of also doing crowdsources. So, I mean, we're probably going to have a little bit of bias here, but I think like there haven't been that many of these. I think there's been like four ever for charity and they're not huge donations to be part of it. Right. But also like they're not curated libraries either. They are very mishmashed. Yeah. They're raw. Part. Yeah. yeah, they're very raw. Like Yeah, you don't expect the same level of professionalism necessarily versus a library that you would buy. Yeah, it's like I think when people coordinate like a proper like library that they're putting for sale, there's a very like distinctive character they're bringing to it. And there's a very distinctive idea that they have in mind for like curating a library in their own style. Versus like crowdsource, which is like there's a lot of great material, but it's not necessary like you go to that library to find the thing that you're looking for. I think some of those libraries, like the Impacts library, was just utterly killer, right? And my participation in that library will unquestionably reduce my need to purchase that kind of library in the future. I'm just not going to have to. Oh, don't say that. Don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> you're ruining it for everyone. It's the truth. No, I get it. Yeah. But I think because of this scene has exploded to the degree that it has, the cream is necessarily going to have to rise to the top. There's going mm. to be things that Thomas Rex Beverly will be able to go do that just aren't going to show up in a crowdsource, right? right. And so the types of people that put libraries out that can rise above that are going to be the ones that sustain. I also think in a broad sense, it's really, really hard to pay your rent selling sound effects libraries. That's just yeah. a high bar. Yeah. Well, especially now. Yeah. I mean, there's so many people and there's so much material out there. And Paul Verosak just wrote an article recently, you know, kind of talking about the sort of this thing. And it was interesting. It was a, a very good take on it. Just sort of it, that was about particularly sort of like what sales kind of do to hurt different things. But I mean, yeah, I mean, when you have 30,000 libraries available, I mean, I used to go to a sound effect and just browse and purchase things to try to help, you know, when there was 100 people on there trying to, you know, I just tried to support it and I'd buy things and stuff. Now it's so daunting that unless I'm looking for something particular, I rarely just go there anymore just to browse. And, you know, now I buy things really only as need arises. And I, my opinion is like the crowdsources aren't going to alleviate what spending I do on on sound effects, like, no. uh, you know, like was said earlier. So, but it is interesting, you know, I mean, again, the problem is that anybody with a recorder can now start trying to sell sound effects. And I think that people had this illusion that there was all this money to be made. You know, there are very few people. I mean, I could count them on both my hands, people that basically make a living selling sound effects, only selling yeah. sound effects. Now, I certainly don't make any money doing it. I mean, my, my little three or four libraries that I have out there have generated, you know, a couple thousand dollars over their lifetime, just barely, you know, it's pocket money. But and the people that are able to do it are the ones that started doing it many, many years ago. You know, Frank Bree and Tim Preble and, you know, these guys who have sort of had a jump start and who have clients who will buy most of their libraries and stuff. And so they've been able to sustain it. But and unfortunately, the quality is going down. You know, I've bought several libraries that were just like, eh, great, it's cheap. I can, you know, get what I want. But the fact that anybody can do it now and anybody is doing it means that sadly it's harder to find the really, really good stuff out there. Yeah, and that's why certain brands, I guess, will rise above the yeah. commodification. Sure. Right? And to you know, to actually compete in that space, you're going to have to bring it on that level. There's just not a moat, and you can't expect there to be a moat. Yeah, I will say that, like, I'm, and I have not had time to really even listen to all the sound effects in the thing that I've just put together because I've been just so busy wrangling it all, but. I will say that the quality overall has pretty impressed me. I mean, there are there are recordings in there that, you know, are very hissy and there are recordings that have mic bumps and they didn't really master them. But I would say the majority of them are pretty well recorded and very usable, you know, to me from what I've been hearing and from what other people seem to be saying as well. There's some really nice stuff in there. And so that's encouraging that the people who want to participate in these things, I think, are getting better and learning and, and these things. Yeah. At least the field recording Slack, like one of the things that I've always like enjoyed most is everyone gets better every single time they participate. 
And there's some people who like never recorded before, probably like two or three years ago, that are now like just killing it. They're doing amazing work. I think the growth and the learning together is probably one of my favorite aspects of the, these crowdsources. And especially like afterwards, when we get to discuss and have conversations about like, what did we learn and techniques did we employ? And like, yeah. how did we get the sounds that we got to? I think is probably one of the best parts of the whole thing. That's a good point. Like the afterwards, like as you're going through the libraries, when they come in, I have repeatedly come across situations where I'll run into something. It'll just become my go-to for that specific thing. And then I'll be able to look up exactly who the heck recorded it and reach out to that person and be like, dude, I'm just I'm just beating up this, this set of sounds you put in this library on this entire project here. And I really get to tell them that. And that's something that, you know, just wasn't the case in the past. And people like to share, you know, their little tips and fun things that they found. I mean, the, the field recording Slack is a great resource that way. I mean, people are very open about sharing their knowledge. Almost any of us that are on there, if anybody asked a question that we know have something to contribute to, we'll try to jump on and answer it and try to be helpful. And, you know, I think that community aspect of it, even though it's becoming a large community, is still very much a community aspect. And people want to share and people want to learn and people want to help other people. And I mean, I've, I've almost never seen somebody posts something that there wasn't a lot of useful replies, you know, it wasn't like anybody jumped on them. Well, that's a stupid question. No, it's like the opposite. It's like people are really, like, oh, let's, you know, let's figure this out. That's also a somewhat new thing. Like uh, back in the 90s, the early 2000s, what made uh, you hired over someone else, maybe a lot of people in their heads thought it was their library. Mm. So I'm not telling anybody how I got this sound because then they can go get it. And I think now the democratization, how do I say that word? You You got got it, it. you got it. (laughs) Uh, Gear and equipment made it so that everybody can get their hands on everything. So let's just all talk about it and figure out how we can do these things. The gatekeepers holding their secrets, I feel like that's starting to melt away. It has melted away. Yeah, at the end of the day, good is good. Like if it sounds good, it's good. Yep. Having a library is important, but it doesn't having a library is not going to make you a great editor or a great designer. Right? That's always been my feeling is like access to good sounds is sort of very helpful in becoming a great designer, but it's not the only thing that's going to get you there. And same thing with knowledge. I mean, I, I'm, I know that sort of in the past, certain people have sort of tried to hide those things away, their secrets. But I, I, I was lucky enough to come up sort of under Gary Rydstrom and Chris Boys and people like that who were just so generous with their time and knowledge of these things. And Gary and I have always had this philosophy of just like we put everything we do in the, in the library to share. And, you know, that makes the company better and that makes all of our projects better and all these things. And so... And I think that is the prevailing attitude now. I think that is slowly changing. And, you know, one of the other things I tried to do in this was like all these Zoom meetings and sort of classes and stuff. And they've been great. It's just like people from all around the world that just want to learn and people who want to teach them and things like that. And, you know, I do think that especially with everything else going to shit this year, a lot of people have just been like, let's do something positive and let's, you know, help people and teach people and these things. And nothing negative ever comes out of that. You know, sharing is never a bad thing. You know, it becomes tiring, as we all know. And, you know, it takes a lot of time and all these things. But I don't see any downside to that, sharing the knowledge, whatever little knowledge I have, I would like to share it with anybody who's interested. I find it super invigorating. Like when I read stuff on the Slack and see people trading ideas about how they recorded something or what they're going to do to make this sound for the library. Like it gets me excited about working when otherwise you kind of feel kind of isolated. And sometimes you bump up against a wall and you're just like, ah, I've lost all steam and then go and read some stuff. And you're like, oh, that sounds cool. Maybe I'll go try that. Mm -hmm. I had a really great experience with a crowdsource recently. Uh, Like two days ago, I was cutting something and it was quite a complicated sound. And uh, I was searching through my library and I found this like perfect sound that I I had to do almost nothing to it to make it work with the image that I had. Mm. So I reached out to the person who did that sound and told them, this is amazing. You've saved my bacon today. And they responded with a download link for everything from the record session that they did that day. Wow. Oh, wow. It just gave me all the material I would need. Like I wasn't asking for that. I was totally content. It was like, yes, this is a community of people who want to help each other out. It's just a great thing to be a part of. Before we started recording, I was talking with everyone about the idea of how before there was social sound design and designing sound, and those things have kind of disappeared. And the field recording Slack community has really filled in that blank for me and made me uh, 
a better sound designer and uh, really helped me grow as a professional. And I'm super grateful for it. Well, yeah. and I just, for me too, I mean, I, I just so enjoy meeting people from all around the world with different experiences and different viewpoints. And I made so many contacts just on this thing of joke around with a couple guys in Argentina. I'm like, wow, really? It's so cool to hear what it sounds like. That. I really want to go to Argentina. So I'm like, oh, come down. You can stay with us. We've got a guest and we'll put you, we'll cook you, <laughs> we'll take you around recording. And, you know, they're sincere about it. And I'm like, I would love nothing more than to be able to travel the world and meet all these people that contributed to this library because that's what sort of interests me is meeting all these new people and stuff. And that's for me the most exciting aspect I think of this is the community part of it. You know, they're, they're crowdsources run by all these different people who spend their time and, and want to join in for different reasons. Some of them just want the library, I'm sure, and some of them are starting out and they it's a great way for them to gather sounds and some of them just love to record and share their knowledge, whatever the reasoning behind it is. It's very exciting and inspiring. You know, it's forced me to get out and record a lot more myself. I mean, I, my career has been such that for the last 10 years, I've been so busy that, I mean, I try to record when I can, but there's been so many jobs, I just haven't had the time. So it's been fun to sort of force myself to get out and record again. And Yep, same. Yeah, that was actually the sole reason we started these crowdsources in the first place was to, like, get people motivated to go and record the vast majority of the recording I do right now, if it's not to picture, it's for one of these crowdsources. And that didn't used to be the case. Yeah. And I hope that will continue. And again, I hope that, uh, you know, again, I'm talking, I, I swore I would never do this again a few days ago. <laughs> you asked me, Justin Drury over at Soundminer keeps joking with me when I'm going to run the next one. And I threatened to defriend him on every social media platform there is for even bringing it up. <laughs> but the truth is, I'm already talking to Thomas Rex Beverly and George Vlad and, and Andy Martin about doing a, a year-long nature one recording across four seasons next year. Ooh. And we have some, we're going to do some very specific things and it'll be a much more focused thing. And it'll be, but a big part of what we're interested in doing I think if we do this, I'm not promising anything, but is the education part of it, like encouraging people to go record nature and to get out into nature and, and to teach people and different stuff. And they, they're all interested in, in giving time and, and teaching. And, and again, we would raise money for some sort of a worthy charity, something that's trying to save our planet. The, the encouragement to get out and record is, is really important. Does it cause you to um, try and make... Have heart palpitations? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> But try and come up with more strictly limited in length or scope or something like that so that you end up with less data to manage at the back end. I definitely try and limit the scope of the ones that I'm doing because I, I recognize what Tim's going through. It's the ping library. <laughs> Tim took a step that I didn't think uh, anyone would feel comfortable doing, which was like... Tim's an idiot. This Tim, not Tim. Let's <laughs> just point out. All Tim's. But you know, Al Circuit did too, though. Al Circuit had to deal with, with scale as well. Oh my um, god, yeah. Yeah, he had about 1,400 sounds, I think. Yeah. I think that was the totally right idea for ambiences. There's so many like small learning curves and stuff. There's a, definitely a community of people who run these. And there is a lot of good advice that we can like pass around. Like it's not necessarily going to like be one size fits all for your whatever you're trying to do, but like there's a lot of things that you can do to make it easier on yourself. I have some thoughts of doing some really really big things. I'd love to crowdsource the world's largest sound effects library someday, but you'd have to figure <laughs> out. You'd have to do something. It would have to be a full time job, honestly. But yeah. But I, I love this aspect of it. But I, I think, again, for ambiences, I knew it was going to draw a lot of people because they're everybody who cuts in this line of business needs ambiences. A lot of people may not need a cartoon library or maybe even an impact library. But nonetheless, you know, like this, I knew it was going to be a wide ranging topic. Not this wide. I didn't know it would get this many people. But I, I knew that it was going to be had the potential to be a larger one because of what Al did as well and noticing how many people had joined that. And I think that it's a great thing. And again, I think that as we keep refining the techniques so that if people people running them can invest slightly less of their time. I mean, I couldn't run another one the same way I think right now. I mean, it took me so much time, so much more than I ever thought it was going to take me to wrangle all of this. I mean, I was wrangling as it came in. So even though I'm turning the library on fairly quickly, I mean, I was every single day I was downloading, meditating, getting things building folders so i mean i i spent two months easily of my time over the course of this you know working on this thing one thing that might eventually like come into play if certain technologies and price points keep falling is that these things could potentially just be open and just be continuously rolling yeah right if things get can get automated to a certain point mm -hmm. Because the ROI on the recording side, like if you just contribute to one of these things, you just get this massive load of sounds back. Right. If 
price points with regards to data storage and transmission keep continue to fall. And if the automation techniques that you and Kai and everyone else are developing continue to progress, I can see it eventually being feasible to just open one up and just leave it open. And yeah. as soon as someone contributes, they get access to the whole thing. And it just keeps rolling like a snowball. My plans, what I'd love to do someday would be to write a custom app for submission of the sounds that would basically prompt you through every step of the metadata so that you basically can't skirt up, you know, force you to enter the things and then build an online library so that there's no even downloads. Basically, it's all online. Exactly. So once you yeah. join it, you upload a certain number of sounds, you somehow have a membership or you get access to it, whatever. And that runs into all kinds of problems legally and other things. But yeah, I mean, no distribution even. And basically, you'd have access to this online crowdsource world of, you know, and I mean, I think there are things that have sort of, you know, things like freesound.org and things like that have tried to do some of these things, but they've never become huge. And, you know, the quality is all over the map and things like that. That's what I see as the big evolutionary step that could happen at some point would be just literally a giant crowdsource participation library that nobody's making money on. That's again, maybe not even for charity, but just so that it's the community aspect of it, but somehow organize in such a way that it's usable and easy to participate in and things like that. I mean, I, I don't know how you would do it. All the blockchain guys are like, I know exactly how you do that. <laughs> well, the block, yeah, yeah. There's people talking about it and different things. You know, it's it's a big hurdle to get over technologically to figure out how to do it. But I, certainly the tools are all there now. The pieces are all out in the world, I think, to do it. Things like SoundMiner can do things in like AUG and FLAC. So you can audition really fast over the network in an AUG format and then transfer a lossless FLAC version. I mean, so the bandwidth issue isn't really so much of an issue anymore. And if I had endless time and, the, and didn't have to pay my rent, I'd try to pursue something like that maybe because I, it fascinates me. But yeah, I'll let Kai do it instead. <laughs> <laughs> Kai, closing thoughts? Yeah, I think these kinds of crowdsources are extremely powerful collaborations, but they also, it just gets super overwhelming. The scale is more than one person can handle. And I think as we move forward in the future, we're going to have to develop more tools and develop more workflows to like integrate more people working on a single crowdsource yeah. um, from a library perspective. And we talked about it. I mean, I, I helped Robbie a little bit on Creatures and then you run into the problem just of trying to like, I, I really did, there were points where I was like, I should reach out for help, but it was like also like, I sort of came to that position like it would take me maybe more time to sort of figure out what help I need than just to hunker down and get it done. So, but I agree there's there, you know, with a, with a shared database somehow that people could actually log in and fix metadata and do things that, you know, there, there's certainly ways that we could probably accomplish that. Exactly. And I think we'll kind of wise up to that in the future. I and mean, the long lesson I've learned in the last couple of years is like from just collecting random files from people and kind of just redistributing them to like now where we're, we have a whole system in place and there's a lot of different factors that you have to kind of consider before you even start one, like a distribution is that like it, every single time you do one, it's only going to get better, mm. but you won't know what the problems are until you run into them. Yeah. I mean, I've learned a ton on this. Kai, I know you learn stuff each time you do it. Renee, I'm sure you'll hit certain things and figure out solutions and different stuff. And so, I mean, that's, again, a nice part of the crowdsource aspect of this is sharing the knowledge of people who want to run one the next time. They're like, well, let me, you know, when Chris Battaglia was going to run his horror one, like we were able to give him a bunch of advice, you know, like, well, this is, you know, the uploader we're using now is like, here's some glitches you're going to find and all these little things that, you know, we're sort of discovering. But I just want to say in closing that one thing is really important. If people want to participate in these things, they shouldn't feel daunted because all of the ones that we're running or have run, we really will reach out to help anybody who wants to join, who feels intimidated in any way. The whole point of this is to encourage recording. And I love the fact that we had so many new, brand new recordists on this one that we just finished. If any listeners are feeling intimidated or something, please don't. Please come and join these things if you have an interest in it. And um, I promise you there are plenty of people that can help you and make you feel welcome. And, you know, that's what it is, is about. It's this community aspect for almost all of us doing them. Yeah, I think also we had a lot of first-time recordists over the years in all these crowdsources. I've seen them come back over and over again. They've just become substantially better recordists. So it's always worth taking a plunge and it's better to like try and get better than uh, to not try at all and stay the same. It's a cool opportunity for people too. It's like there, it is low stakes. So it's a good chance to just experiment and express yourself. 
Yeah, and a lot of people joining these are seasoned recordists and really professional recordists, much better than I am even. And it's always fun to go and ask their advice and learn about it. People should think of these as learning to aspects, ways to learn to be better recordists if that's what you're interested in. Well, thanks a lot, everybody, for taking part. It's been a really great for myself from uh, the Sound Collectors Club all the way up to uh, the one that Tim just ran and a bunch that Kai have run. Learning, building my metadata knowledge and really building out my library with all this stuff. It's been really great professionally as well as socially. So thank you for talking with us today and you'll find links for all the different libraries that we've talked about the charity ones you can go donate to those and uh, get the impacts library the cartoon library and probably by the time this comes out my home library will probably be available so uh, go to tonebenderspodcast.com find this episode and you'll be able to find links to all that as well as universal category system and the slack field recording channel so Renee, you got anything else for that? I guess I got some web programming to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, also uh, Al Circuit's ambient isolation. Yeah, um, ambient isolation. We'll put the link up to that as well. Thank you, guys. I hope people recognize how generous you are in the amount of time and data streaming bandwidth that you've donated <laughs> to a project that is really just a great learning opportunity for people and I hope people recognize how much work you guys put into it. <laughs> oh, thanks. And you guys in the podcast, too. I mean, we all do these things as labors of love to some degree. And it doesn't always mean they're easy. But, you know, I think we always find some meaning in our, you know, what we're trying to do. So thank you. Thanks for having us. High fives, everybody. Hey, right, take care, everyone. This episode was edited by Max Carey. Go to maxcarey.com, that's M-A-X-C-A-R-R-E-Y.com to find out more about Max's work in podcasting, location recording, and audio post-production. Thank you so much, Max. Filmbenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in more audio-related content, stay tuned for a pod card from the Audio Podcast Alliance and find links to other shows at audiopodcast.org. This is Christian from the Sound Effect Podcast. In our latest episode, you'll hear Sound Morph's Jason Cushing talking about their sound effects work, including stories behind some of their libraries and about independent sound effects in general. You'll also meet BAFTA award-winning composer Jesper Kidd, who talks about his work on Assassin's Creed Valhalla, all at www.soundeffect.com slash podcast. <laughs>